Matthew 21, the title of this message is The Lamb on the Donkey. I know it seems like a kid's book, but it's not. It's the Bible, The Lamb on the Donkey. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. It starts in Matthew 21, verse 1, and says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Quote, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey, end quote. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosea, Hosanna, excuse me, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we ask right now together that you would bless us with an understanding and the receiving of your word. I pray right now, God, that you would bless this gathering of your sons and daughters, of friends here together, that you would bless us, God, by making us attentive to your word, by making us alive to and deeply aware of your presence that you would bless us by causing us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that you would bless us with soft hearts to receive, ears wide open and minds that would comprehend, and that you would bless us by helping us with the Holy Spirit to not only receive your word, but to live your word. And we all pray together, God, that you would help me to be a faithful servant now in this pulpit, faithful to the word, faithful to Jesus, and faithful to this church whom I love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we get to Matthew chapter 21, we are in the last week before the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So what happens in our text today is on a Sunday. And just one week from that Sunday will be the day that Jesus rises from the dead. So there's 28 chapters in Matthew. We're in chapter 21. So we have eight more chapters. Matthew takes eight chapters to cover just this one week of Jesus' life and the events surrounding it. That's almost one-third of the book. And the previous two-thirds of the book compromised a little over three years. So what does that tell us? That tells us that this last week that we're going to be looking at is incredibly important. That these last eight chapters have a lot to say to us. Matthew, the Holy Spirit through Matthew, is very careful to explain those things to us. So we will take between now and Christmas to study these last eight chapters in the book of Matthew. And in today's text, in Matthew chapter 21, there are these amazing, like, theological, prophetic, messianic, Jewish, social, political, and historical threads all coming together, all woven together, together in this incredible way in the text. So it, it's a little intricate and layered. So I'm going to ask you today, as your preacher, to pay close attention. 
If you came in hopes of being entertained today, you will be disappointed. If you came in hopes of being taught today, you might learn something. So I want you to pay attention because there's a lot that's going on here. We have in front of us a historical account that's full of rich imagery with biblical background, beautiful symbolism that draws from Jewish understanding, Jewish culture, and the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, and all these biblical fulfillments happening concomitantly. And Jesus, as usual in this text, is acting in ways that were surprising to his audience and are surprising to us. You might remember that up until this time, Jesus would often perform miracles. He'd do something for an individual and then he'd say to them, hey, don't tell anybody, right? You you remember that? We've seen Jesus say that over and over again. And just when we got used to him saying that strange thing, now Jesus is doing the opposite on this day. Now Jesus is making a very public, intentional proclamation about who he is. He doesn't want anybody to miss it. The messianic secret is out of the bag. Jesus is throwing all the cards on the table and being very intentional to reveal himself here. And he does it as he comes into Jerusalem, it says in verse one. He's coming into Jerusalem and he's going by the way of the Mount of Olives. Now the Mount of Olives is on the east side of Jerusalem, on the east side of the Temple Mount specifically. And they're not big mountains. They're a few hundred feet high. The Mount of Olives is a little taller than the Temple Mount. So from the top of the Mount of Olives, you could look down at the Jewish temple and see all the activity there. And it was only separated by a small valley called the Kidron Valley, which is more like a ditch or a creek. It's not very large, the scale of these things. So that whatever is happening on the Mount of Olives, as Jesus is coming down and all this stuff is happening, it would be heard on the Temple Mount. People that were gathered on the temple could hear what's going on there so that nobody in Jerusalem would miss this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. And as I said, it happens on a Sunday, and that Sunday happens to be the beginning of Passover. In the Christian calendar, we call it Palm Sunday because there were palm branches here. But on the Jewish calendar, this particular day in which Jesus enters Jerusalem was the beginning of Passover. Now listen to me. In the Jewish understanding of Bible and what God had done for them and the way that they related to God and who God was, there was nothing that loomed larger in their minds than the Passover. The Passover was the event where God delivered them from slavery to Egypt. And they were meant by God to celebrate that event every single year. There was the Passover celebration. And it started on a certain day and it lasted all week long. And this day is a certain day in Jerusalem that day when all Jews will be thinking about and beginning to celebrate Passover. When God delivered them from Egypt by having them slaughter a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the outside of their doors. They put a little bit of blood on the top of the door a little on the side and a little on the side. And as the blood dripped from the top down to the ground and it was on the side, it might make this shape of a... Oh my goodness, you're beginning to see the picture. And so that happened thousands of years ago that God said, I'm going to bring a plague against Egypt because they're oppressing you. They are the oppressor. I will deliver you from them. But when I bring that plague, you slaughter this lamb and you put the blood on your homes and I will pass over you in my judgment. I will pass over you in my judgment. We'll look at the text in just a moment. 
This was a big deal for Israel because it was that night that they were delivered from Egypt and they had the Exodus experience. And so they would celebrate this and it was like a time of nationalistic zeal. It was almost like the 4th of July for us. It was like Independence Day, you know what I mean? It was a huge celebration for them. So much so that God required that every Jewish male over the age of 18 appear in Jerusalem every single Passover. Wherever they were, they were supposed to go to Jerusalem during this time and appear there to celebrate the feast. So the population of Jerusalem would swell during this celebration from a couple hundred thousand perhaps to Josephus, the Jewish historian, says 2.7 million people in the city, little Jerusalem. So it was like a bustle and a stir with all this activity, remembering, celebrating, and enacting what God had done for them in delivering them. And what that would have done in Israel 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem was create a little bit of social tension. Because you'll remember that Jerusalem, all of Israel, excuse me, was occupied by Rome at the time, right? This was the days of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire always had Roman soldiers stationed around somewhere like Jerusalem. You know, it was an urban area at that time. But they double, tripled, and quadrupled down on Roman soldiers in Jerusalem during the Passover because it was Independence Day. It was the celebration of their deliverance from another oppressor thousands of years ago, Egypt. And Rome, the oppressor now, knew that there was this nationalistic zeal and this excitement and this celebration that could kind of bubble up sometimes. So they kind of cranked it down a little bit on their, on their guards, you know, put the, just lockdown, put the 5-0 on lockdown. And there was also at that time all of this increased messianic expectation because what the Jews understood was that when Messiah comes, Messiah will deliver us from any and all oppressors. And Rome was clearly the oppressor of the day in their mindset. And during Passover, any time that a Jewish home celebrated the Passover feast, they would set an extra chair there that remained empty. And that chair was for Elisha. Because it said in the book of Malachi that before Messiah comes, Elisha will come. And they were so expectant that Messiah would come on the remembrance of Deliverance Day, on the Passover, and deliver them, that every Jewish household set a chair for Elisha in expectation. If Messiah is going to come, he's going to come during Passover, they would think. So you had this huge expectation of deliverance. You had this current Roman occupation and this swell of population and this celebration of what God had done and being their mighty deliverer. And it created this like tension, this intrigue in the city that I'm sure if you were there, you could feel. And to add to that intrigue, a couple days before this happened, Jesus raised somebody from the dead. What was his name? Lazarus. Raised him from the dead. The dude had been dead for four days. And this happened just outside Jerusalem in a little surrounding village. I don't know if you know, but when someone gets raised from the dead, it's kind of a big deal. And so that adds to what verse 10 says, where it says in our text that all the city was stirred. Literally, the word is shaken. The city was like shaken up at what was going on with Passover and this expectation and this suppression. And also this guy who came from Nazareth of all places, some nowhere podunk town up north, he just rose this dude from the dead. 
And that increased the intrigue and the tension. John chapter 11 helps us understand and explains it to us. Keep a finger in Matthew 21. Flip over to John 11 very quickly and we'll see that. We're going to read a few verses and uh, several times during the reading I will say pause, which means give me your attention to that time because I'm going to explain something about the text to help us get the picture here. We'll pick it up right at the resurrection of Lazarus in John eleven forty three. John eleven forty three. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Okay, pause right there. So in Jewish culture, when somebody died, a lot of people that you knew, friends and acquaintances, would come to your house to mourn with you for several days. They would sit with you in mourning. So there was a lot of people who were around when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And it said many of the Jews who were there believed in Jesus. In other words, they saw this miracle. They heard what Jesus said where he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even if she dies. And they believed in him as the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer, the only unique Son of God. Others did not believe, and you notice they went away and they reported what happened to the, what does it say there? To the Pharisees. Now, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are the antagonists throughout the Gospels, right? They're the ones who set themselves up as the opposition to Jesus, Jesus has all sorts of confrontations with them, head-on confrontations. We'll have more in the closing chapters of Matthew. They have arguments back and forth. They're the antagonists. So what's interesting is that Jesus comes near Jerusalem. He raises Lazarus from the dead, an undeniable miracle. Some believe, but some go and start to conspire with the enemy, the Pharisees. And then it says in the next verse, verse 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Pause right there. The Sanhedrin was the religious governing body of Israel during the time. It was made up of 70 elders, both from the party of the Pharisees and the party of the Sadducees, kind of like Democrats and Republicans, sort of, but very different. Uh, The religious life of Israel was governed by them, these 70 elders. So they call a meeting, right? Hey, some guys just came and said, Jesus rose this dude from the dead. We need to have a meeting to talk about this. So it's a big deal when they convene. So now they convene to discuss it, discuss it. And they say in the second part of verse 47, what are we accomplishing? They asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Pause right there. They say, look guys, what are we doing? This dude, Jesus, is doing undeniable signs and wonders. He just raised someone from the dead. If it goes on like this, the Romans, looming large in their mind, are going to take away our temple and our nation. Why do they say that? Because they realize that what Jesus was setting himself up to be is who he was, the Messiah. And to be the Messiah in Jewish mindset was to be the king. And the understood exclamation of the the Roman Empire was, there is no king except for Caesar. 
And if they let Jesus and his ministry gain momentum, if they let Jesus gain more followers, if everybody begins to decry him as the Messiah, the King, then that is a threat to Rome and Rome becomes a new imposing threat on Israel. And they said, they'll take away our temple and they'll take away our nation. They'll take away our sovereignty because we're claiming that we, ha- that we have this king. So they're feeling the tension, the political and social and religious tension of that moment intersecting. You with me? Verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, pause, he's like the head of the whole gig, okay? Back in it. Spoke up saying, you guys don't know anything at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now look at John's comments on that in verse 51. John says, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Pause right there. Caiaphas, the high priest, the head of this whole governing body says, okay, you guys don't know what you're talking about. This is not a big deal. All we need to do is kill Jesus. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, yeah, if Jesus continues and it goes in this way and Rome thinks that we're installing this guy as some sort of Jewish king here, then we're going to have problems with Romans and probably a lot of us are going to suffer. But if we just kill Jesus, then that solves the problem. You guys are idiots. This is easy. Why are we having this meeting? Ever been in a meeting like that? I have. Why are we having this meeting? What he didn't know, what John clues us into is the fact that the Holy Spirit was speaking through him that Jesus indeed would be the one who died for the nation, but also for the whole world to make us the church. So there's like this crazy, like this guy is plotting murder, but the Holy Spirit is like working through the very things that he's saying. Do you see the intrigue? This is not lost on you, is it? Okay, if it is, you're lost. Verse 54, therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Isn't that interesting? Jesus took the threat real. That's real. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, what we've been talking about, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover, what we've been talking about, everybody going to Jerusalem. They kept looking for Jesus And they stood in the temple courts and they asked one another, what do you think? Is he going to come? Is he going to show up to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Okay, you can flip back to Matthew chapter 21. So there's all this like religious, spiritual, political cultural plotting, tension, and excitement in the air. It would have been thick in Jerusalem at that time. It would have been electric. And John just told us, everyone is standing around the Temple Mount saying, hey, you think this Jesus guy is even going to show up? And it is into that atmosphere that Jesus shows up on the Mount of Olives. In clear view, in clear view of everyone gathered on the Temple Mount. And he deliberately sets the stage. You saw in verses 2 and 3, it says this. 
Jesus said to his disciples, go to the village ahead of you, and once, once there you will find a donkey tied with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. A couple things about that. Number one, I just think it's awesome that they got to go take some donkeys and just say the Lord needs them. <laughs> Try that next time, like, dude, where's my surfboard? Oh, the Lord needed it, bro, sorry. <laughs> I don't know if... Jesus prearranged that. Like he went to the donkey owners before and he's like, look, on Sunday, I'm going to send these guys. They're my disciples. The password is the Lord needs them. (laughs) I don't know if he arranged it or if it was just a supernatural Jesus sort of like Jedi thing, like the Lord needs them. (laughs) These are not the donkeys you're looking for. Either way, Jesus deliberately, intentionally sets the stage by having these donkeys brought to the Mount of Olives. And then Matthew comments and tells us exactly what's going on here in verse 4. He says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Now he's going to quote Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9. Say to daughter Zion, which is another way of saying Israel, look. Your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is setting the stage. Everybody's there waiting for the curtains to, you know, like open. Like, what's going to happen this week in Jerusalem? Jesus is setting the stage. Matthew tells us, man, this is a fulfillment of something that God promised 500 years ago. Book of Zechariah. 500 years ago, God said, there's a day coming to you, daughter of Zion, Israel, when your king will come and he will come lowly, humbly sitting on a donkey. And then look how the scene develops in verse six. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Stop right there. So now, Jesus is on this donkey, and it's clear from this text and other texts, he gets on the younger of the two, he's on the colt, the foal of a donkey, he's on the little donkey, sitting on the little donkey. They had put their clothes on top of it, and now they're throwing their clothes on the road in front of them. They're taking off their jackets, and they're putting down their jackets for like the donkey to walk over. That's like normal king stuff. That already happened in the Old Testament when Elisha, the prophet, anointed Jehu as king. And the people that were present, when they figured out, they took off their clothes. Not all of them. They took off their jackets and they threw them down. And King Jehu walked on. That's a king stuff. Next time you're a king, you'll get to walk on people's clothes. So that was not that abnormal. But they're also cutting branches and laying those in the road. And John tells us that they're palm branches. And they're not just cutting them and laying in the road. They're also waving them back and forth. And the palm branch was a symbol of great significance in Israel during the time. The palm branch was the symbol of national freedom and independence and deliverance. It had been for a few hundred years in Israel. In fact, they had it on some of their coins. On some of their coins, they had a palm branch. And Judas Maccabees, who led a revolt against another oppressor a couple hundred years ago, that became the symbol for freedom them. So remember, it's Passover. Everyone is recognizing and celebrating and gathering for the remembrance and the reenacting of God delivering his people from Egypt. And now there's this guy coming in this kingly manner. People are throwing down their clothes in front of him. And these people are waving palm branches that's like waving an uh, American flag on the 4th of July. 
if we were occupied by like Canada or something, which would never happen, but something like that, like waving the palm branches on Passover was like as nationalistic, like independent deliverance, God-oriented sort of thing that they could do. That's the scene that's going on. And all of that was pretty normal for a ruler entering into an area. In, in that ancient culture, kings would come and people would throw down their clothes and they would wave things and they'd get all excited and they would make all that noise. But there was one thing that was incredibly abnormal. That was the fact that Jesus was on a donkey. And a little donkey. A donkito. Is that a word? No, it's not a word. <laughs> I was thinking of perrito. No, it's... Never mind. Little donkey. That was not normal. No king worth his salt came into a city on a donkey. They always came on horses. Horses were the animals of royalty. Horses were the animals that represented power and authority and victory. When Alexander the Great, that Greek ruler, came into Jerusalem a few hundred years before, he came on a war horse and a massive war horse. It was like a hundred hands. That's an exaggeration, but it was a big war horse. He came in, And that's the way that kings came in. Jesus is clearly coming as a king, but he's coming as a very different sort of king. And this is where we begin to see the paradox of Christianity and Jesus in his ministry emerge. Jesus is clearly coming as a king, but a different sort of king. He is not coming, as the people would have certainly expected at that time, to conquer the prevailing political powers. Rather, he is coming to suffer on behalf of sinners. He's not coming to conquer political powers. He's coming to actually suffer on behalf of sinners. He's not coming to confront Caesar and Rome and their political and social and cultural oppression. He is coming to confront the tyranny of sin, death, and the devil. And he will do so as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lamb of God. Think about that imagery for a moment. Remember that this is Passover week. And there was something at the beginning of Passover week that every Jewish household had done for thousands of years that is being ultimately fulfilled in this moment. Okay, watch this. We're going to go to the Passover text in Exodus and see how this all unfolds. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, which is the day that corresponds with this day here, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be uh, year-old males without defect, and you can take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them, listen to that, until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb, the sides and the tops. What does that look like? You guys are so smart. And it continues. God says now, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. But the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. 
And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So that night on the actual Passover, they were to do this. And every year after they were to do this. So on this day, the first day of Passover, the day that Jesus is showing up in Jerusalem, every head of every Jewish household was choosing a lamb for the household. It had to be a lamb that was about a year old without defect, the text said, right? So it had to be like a pure and spotless lamb, no problems with it. And it said that they were to bring it into the household until the 14th of the month. So they would get this lamb on a Sunday and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the lamb was to be in the house with the household. There were two reasons why every Jewish household did that. Number one, it was an opportunity for them to observe that lamb to be sure that the lamb was without fault, without defect, without flaw, pure and spotless. They would observe it. It was in their home for four days. The second reason that every Jewish household did that is because in those four days, that fluffy little innocent, cute little lamb would become appreciated. Maybe part of the household. So that when at the end of the fourth day, at the end of the week, they took it out and the whole community slaughtered it and the kids saw dad put the blood all over the door frames, they would have a horrific, real sense of the fact that that which was innocent and without fault died and bled for me that the judgment of God might pass over my family. Do you see this? This is flipping awesome. Here's what God is doing as Jesus is making his entry into Jerusalem. God, as the ultimate head of the household of Israel, has chosen his lamb. And he is presenting to the household Jesus as his lamb. And corresponding perfectly with the Passover celebration, Jesus will now go and spend Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the next four days in the household, the temple. And he will be observed and tested to see whether or not he is without fault and spotless and blameless. The opposition, the enemies and the crowds will all question him. We'll see in the weeks to come. And when it gets to the end of the week, Pilate will say, I find no guilt in the man. He's innocent. And it was meant so that all Israel would have a horrific sense of, of the glorious beauty and grace of God that Jesus, who was the innocent lamb of God, died on the cross and bled for them. This is the ultimate fulfillment of what John the Baptist said in John chapter one, when he looked at Jesus and behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This moment is God saying, this is my lamb the ultimate head of the household, bringing him into the household to be sacrificed on their behalf. Remember Abraham and Isaac? This goes way back, even before Moses and all this stuff. Remember there's that disturbing story where Abraham says to Isaac, I want you to, or says, I'm sorry, God says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. And there's that really uncomfortable moment in Genesis where Abraham and Isaac are walking up the mountain to the place where you would make the sacrifice, which, by the way, was the same mountain where the temple stood. 
was walking up that mountain. And Isaac looks up at his dad and he says, Dad, I see wood. I see cords. I see stuff to make fire. I see everything for a sacrifice. But where's the sacrifice? And Abraham somehow, with the help of God, the Holy Spirit speaking through him, says this to his son in that moment. God will provide for himself the lamb for the offering. He didn't know what he was saying. God had told him to sacrifice his own son. And when he got up there, he tied his son to the altar. Just when he was about to take his life, the angel of the Lord stops him. And he says, look, God is the only one who will provide the sacrifice of his son. And he looks over and there's a ram stuck in the thicket. And that becomes the sacrifice. And God was teaching Abraham and all of humanity that no sacrifice that we could ever make will do anything or is worthy of God other than what God himself will do for us in his son, Jesus. And in the Hebrew, the word for is not there. It says God will provide himself the lamb. Jesus is God in the flesh, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And all of this is happening in that moment. This is Isaiah 53 unfolding where it says, About Jesus, 700 years before the cross, he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Are you getting this? It's hard to miss, right? You're like, whoa, it all makes sense. Like the whole Bible, the whole thing's like coming together. And I think that they got it, but I don't think they fully got it. They got some of it because we know what song they were singing. Did you notice the song that they were singing? In verse nine, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So I already told you that the Temple Mount was within earshot of the Mount of Olives where this is going on. And the text says it was a very large crowd and they all together were shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna means please save. Comes from Psalm 118. We'll look at it in a minute. It means please save. Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David means the Messiah, the King. David was the warrior king over Israel. David was the one who beat Goliath. David was the one who always beat the enemies of Israel. And the Messiah would come in his line. So when you say, Hosanna to the son of David, you are saying, save now, warrior king. In the earshot of all the worshipers and all the guards at the Temple Mount, I mean, this was a stir. Pharisees are nervous. What is that shouting on the Mount of Olives? You better tell those guys to shut up or the, Fer- or the Romans are going to take away our place and our temple. They're singing this out. They're crying it out. Hosanna later became in Jewish culture, not just a petition, please save now, but just a way of praising God for being the savior. That's the way we use it. We say that word and we sing it. We'll sing it in a little bit. 
And it comes from Psalm 118, which, like Zechariah 9.9, was always understood by Israel to be a psalm that talked about, looked forward to the day when the Messiah would come about a thousand years before it did. So that phraseology comes from this passage in Psalm 118. Lord, save us. Yahweh, Hosanna. Lord, Yahweh, save us. Hosanna, that phrase transliterated. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So that's what they're singing as Jesus is coming in. Now, in Jewish culture, they didn't always have biblical texts written down. It was primarily an oral culture. So what Jewish youngsters were trained to do was memorize scripture. And what Jewish teachers knew to do was when they wanted to bring a passage to mind, there weren't numbers back then, they wouldn't say, turn to Psalm 118. They would quote a line from Psalm 118, and Jewish minds that had remembered scripture would think of the whole context of that. This is what Jesus is doing on the cross when he quotes the first line from Psalm 22. My Lord, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first line for Psalm 22. He's getting his Jewish audience there to bring to their minds Psalm 22 and the message therein. And it goes on to explain the crucifixion of Jesus in cruciating detail a thousand years before he was crucified. This is what's going on here. They're singing this psalm, but they all know the background of it. And the background of it is important for us. So we'll, we'll broaden our snippet of the text here and we'll see it. Sorry, in verse 21 of Psalm 18, Israel says, I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation, right? The lamb, the sacrifice himself. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who's that about? Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us explicitly that that was about Jesus. as is the book of Peter. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Look, this is what's happening. They're saying the Lord is doing this this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Continue. Lord, save us. Yahweh, Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made a light shine on us. Familiar language from the birth of Jesus. With bows in hand. Those are branches. I told you they're waving palm branches. This was written a thousand years before. Join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. That's what's in the background of the Jewish mind is that this may be the moment when finally the deliverer, the Messiah is coming. But we already saw that verse 10 said the whole city was stirred. Not everyone believed and not everybody was proclaiming. There were those, remember, who went and reported to the antagonists, the Pharisees, what were going on. There were those who were plotting to kill Jesus. There were those who were asking questions. And when it says in verse 10 of our text that the whole city was stirred, literally the word is shaken. This is like shaking the city. I think it's making sense and some of the viewers, like Jewish minds there, but the only thing that isn't making sense to them is the darn donkey. Why is the king coming on a donkey? And that wouldn't have been a fresh question for them. That was actually an old question for them. Rabbis used to debate back and forth. When Messiah comes, is he going to come on a donkey? Or is he going to come on a big horse? Is he going to come in humility? Or is he going to come in glory? 
because there were texts in the Old Testament that suggested both. We already saw the text from Zechariah 9.9 that said your king is coming to you lowly or humble, mounted on a little donkey. But there were other texts that they wondered about, like Daniel 7. I'll just read you a part of it. They all understood this to be about the Messiah. Where Daniel says at the end of, or in the middle, verse 13 of Daniel 7, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Okay, this is where Jesus got the title son of man. That's why he calls himself that. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So see how that's like the polar opposite of, hey, behold, your king is coming to you on a little donkey, humble. This is he's coming with the clouds in glory, with power and authority. So the rabbis would debate back and forth. Well, which one is it? How is Messiah going to come? And if we look at Jewish writings, there are very opinions about it, but there's this one that's interesting. This is from the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin, part 98a. One rabbi said about this, if they, meaning Israel, are meritorious, meaning deserving, when he, meaning Messiah, comes, he will come with the clouds of heaven. If not, if they're not deserving, lowly and riding upon an ass. King Shapur said to Samuel, ye maintain that the Messiah will come upon an ass. I will rather send him a white horse of mine. Why? Because white horses were the animals of glory and victory and power. They were the Daniel 7 picture. The rabbis were already talking years before Jesus comes that when Messiah comes, if we are not worthy, he's coming in a Zechariah 9-9 sort of way. And therein is the very point. None of us are worthy of God giving us this pure, spotless, innocent lamb of his precious blood being spilled for us, of his death on the cross in our place, that we might have the forgiveness of sins and new life and whole life and eternal life. None of us are worthy of that. This is God enacting for Israel and for all of humanity. His grace. And we are there, the undeserving before him. And I think the fact that they maybe missed that is evident in what Luke tells us that in Jesus' entry in Jerusalem, before he got there, he paused on the Mount of Olives, and this happened. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. They were looking for a political peace. They were looking for temporal, tangible deliverance. But Jesus came on this very day that was appointed to do away with a much bigger problem and the much bigger enemies of sin death, and the devil. The fact that they as a whole missed it is evidenced by the fact that some of the same crowd that were crying Hosanna on Sunday were crying crucify him on Friday. So, in the crazy twist and irony and paradox of Jesus and Christianity, he came as a king, but the king came to die. And the king died. 
and the king rose again. So we need to go back to the prophet Zechariah and see the whole passage that Matthew only quoted part of to see what we're supposed to do with that. Zechariah 9.9 in whole says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Man, it's a gnarly story. The innocent died for the guilty. Jesus came and he died, but he rose from the dead. And the ancient text tells us that in that we have found true reason to rejoice. Better than the Romans being done away with. Better than a change in our government. Better than a change in our temporal situation. Better than a change in the United Nations. Jesus has done away with the real problem. The big enemies of sin, death, and the devil. So joy has been brought to us in the suffering Lamb of God who gave his life in our place. But that's not the whole story. The Jewish mind would bring to mind the rest of the text. And verse 10 brings us a bigger picture. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horses from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations. This is Messiah. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus came as a king. Jesus died as a king. Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus is coming again. And Jesus came the first time to suffer, to deal with the real enemies, sin, death, and the devil in our place that we might have life and new life and eternal life. Jesus is coming again in power and in glory with the clouds to undo everything that our sin and the cumulative sins of the world have done in destroying this existence. He is coming to right every wrong and undo and vanquish and deal with every single evil. Jesus is coming again. The rabbis debated back and forth, which way will he come? What we understand is that he has come as the suffering lamb and he will come as the glorious king. And so in perfect irony, the end of the book, if we were to skip to the end of the book, Revelation chapter 19, we will see this. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, Cavallo Blanco. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. Who's that? And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and no one knows what that means. But verse 13 says, He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Oh my gosh! And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses as well. This is like victory picture here. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he might strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is flipping awesome. Jesus came as a king who was the lamb on a little donkey who suffered in our place that we might have life and new life and whole life and eternal life. And Jesus is coming again on a big white horse in righteousness and in judgment 
to deal with everything that is in rebellion to him, everything that is evil and has gone wrong. And in that day, the book of Revelation says, he will wipe away every tear and there'll be no more dying, no more pain, nor more sorrow for God is among his people. This is a hope that we have in Christ and it's beautiful. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for these beautiful truths. Thank you for your word. We ask together, Lord, that you would help us conform our lives to the hope that we find here in Scripture and the joy that's here and the promise of peace. You are the Prince of Peace who came for us. We are those who live in this crazy world and we face crazy powers and all sorts of evils. All of our hope is in you, Jesus, in the day that you will come in glory to right every wrong. But we ourselves have been evil. And we've made our own messes. And we come to you as the one who came to us first in a manger and then on a little donkey and gave himself for us. That we might have forgiveness. I pray for anyone in this room, Lord, who has never come to you and repented of their sins and asked for forgiveness, that they would do so today and that you'd flood them with joy and hope and peace and grace. And in the the perplexities of our lives, teach us to cry Hosanna. Teach us in all of our drama to cry out to you, please save, and to praise you for the salvation that you've brought to us. Save us, Lord, from our rebellion. Save us from our waywardness. Save us from our addictions. Save us, God, from our bitterness our unforgiveness. Save us, God, from our selfishness. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our king and you are a good king. Bring us into a sweet place of living under your kingship. Thank you, Lord, that you came to us humbly. May we come to you humbly today 